So a few hours ago, my phone rings. I take my phone out of my pocket. I can see it's Dwight calling me. And I think, hmm, why is he calling? <laughs> and uh, yeah, as this is, you may have picked up at this point, uh, he tested positive for COVID this morning and um, was going to be preaching. And uh, so now I am standing in the breach. I'm just going to reorient some stuff here. So the beautiful thing about this is a lot of times when you are preaching, you invest an inordinate amount of time preparing and then preach out of your own sufficiency, your own ability, which does not give glory to God and does not have the power of God. And um, so there was not much room for that today. Uh, we're going to be preaching. Dwight's notes are like a schizophrenic person's. He talked me through them on the way over on speakerphone. I don't even remember driving here, just trying to hear and then work through some stuff to, to uh, bring this passage um, still for us this morning. So I appreciate your grace um, as sort of pick up both the intention that Dwight had for us and the time that he invested in what he felt the Spirit had for us uh, this morning as a church and as a church gathered, and then, of course, what the Spirit uh, really wants to say and do in the midst of um, changing things up. So um, I'm just going to pray for us again, and then we'll get to work. Jesus, we do want to fix our eyes on you uh, this morning, and we do so by opening your word to us. Uh, we ask that you uh, would send your spirit in a manifest way uh, in um, our midst this morning. As Jordan uh, prayed that, that you would take the glory for yourself, uh, and that we would come away from this space with our eyes fixed on you. And we ask that you would do this, and, and Spirit, I just ask that for your help and your sufficiency in this task. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we live in interesting times where everyone seems to feel like it's important to protect the fragile, fragile psyche of our children. Um, Perhaps you've experienced this. It's probably from like a psychologist or something in the 70s wrote something describing, you know, how important it was that everybody is affirmed and never, you know, said anything bad about them. Everyone's a precious, precious, unique snowflake so that we don't bruise their psyche and they can reach their full potential. Uh, I started watching this show um, where these people go to work and they have their brains severed so that while they're at work, they're only thinking about work. And when they go home, they're only thinking about life at, at home. And the main character is at his sister's house who is pregnant. She's married to this guy who's super into this philosophy. And it's late and they're like, you should stay over. And he's like, no, I'm going to go home. No, no, you should stay. You can sleep in the, in the nursery. And he's like, well, you know, is there a bed? And they're like, we have three beds. And you go in there and there's the crib then there's one of those cool little boy race car beds. You know, you're sleeping in a race car. And then like a grown-up bed, you know, for a teenager. And he's like, why do you have these three beds? And they're like, well, studies have shown how deeply scarring it is 
to have your parents remove, from, remove you from one bed and move you to a bigger bed, a different bed. And we don't want that scarring, permanent damage to be done to our children. And so they're going to be born into the world. She's still pregnant at this point. Born into the world. And in their room, all of their future beds will be there for them when they're ready. So they can just naturally re-nest themselves and from size to size. He slept in the race car. It would have been my choice. And, uh, but there's this sense in our culture that everyone needs to have that sort of the trauma blunted as much as possible. So much so that we have things like participation awards. Be honest, who here has ever technically lost, but also received a participation award? A lot of you, right? What color are they if you get a ribbon? Yellow? Green? I would always get the green. You know, it's like in track and field, there's like blue's the winner, then red, then white's third place, but then the green one, the green one, and you just, you throw that in the garbage because you don't care. Um, Paul's writing to a, uh, a city, Colossae, that is, sort of has damage in this area. They used to be a really important city back in like 3rd to 5th century BC. They were a big deal. But now, as Paul's writing to them in the 1st century, they're like the least important of all of the cities, of all of the churches that he's writing to. And it it would have been natural for someone in our time to write to them and try to, you know, just gently soothe the hurt of of just not being who they once were. Um, They are certainly looking back always kind of like to the good old days of their identity when they used to be more important. And Paul could have helped lift them up in themselves and and look back at the time like, you guys really were special at that time. Does Paul do that? No, Paul doesn't do that. Instead, Paul rightly directs their vision to look at Jesus. Now, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your scriptures, I don't know that it's just probably going to say that the whole time. There's not going to be any slide with scripture, I don't think. So um, I invite you to open Colossians chapter 1. And as um, Jenny read for us some chunk of this, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 15. And in a similar way, we're going to allow Paul to redirect our vision to Jesus as well. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a significant passage because it reveals a few things about Jesus that are not immediately obvious if you look at his earthly life. Uh, For one, that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, a lot of people today, when they're wrestling with the reality of God, they'll say things like, if only God would show himself, then I would have an easier time believing in him. You know, just if a big door opened up in the sky and God's like, oh yeah, I'm real, hey, you know, somebody caught it, put it on YouTube, everyone would be like, oh, God is real, I saw him, right? But no, God is invisible, the Father is invisible to us, he's a, he's a God that hides, Scripture says. You say, well, why wouldn't the Lord show himself to us, reveal himself to us? Well, he does in the person of Jesus. 
That Jesus coming as God the Son, leaving the divine lifestyle and entering into human flesh is the image of God the Father. That we can learn things about God by looking at the person of Jesus. Additionally, that it says he was the firstborn of all creation. Now, who's had Jehovah Witnesses come to their, their door before? You know, yes, knock, knock, dress nice. They're like, did you know? And they'll go to this verse. Did you know that Jesus isn't God? And you're like, oh, tell me more about that. And they're like, well, he's actually the firstborn of all creation. Meaning he's just the first created being. He is special. He's special. But he's not God. He's just Satan's older brother. Right? That's, that's, that's their perspective on Jesus when they look at this passage. But that's not what Paul means when he's saying firstborn. He's talking like firstborn in the first century sense of the term under patriarchy where the firstborn son would inherit the, the sort of the leadership of the family unit. And these family units were broader than sort of the nuclear little units you came in this morning, but aunts and uncles and servants and cattle and sheep and shepherd boys and all of this, this sort of little empire that the firstborn son would be the inheritor of all of this and would receive the double inheritance and the double blessing. That there was a supremacy in being the firstborn. There was a uniqueness and an importance. That's what Paul is pointing to here when he says that Jesus was firstborn. And he says not only this, but that, that Jesus doesn't just own everything, but that Jesus had agency in making all things and that all things were made through him and for him. That they belong to him. And not just things visible, but invisible things as well. It talks here about Things invisible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. When you think about a throne just by itself, there's authority there that then represents a kingdom. We talk about like a dominion. Dominion is large. When you talk about um, rulers and authorities, they're over things. So these are top level categories that are above huge realities. And they're invisible to us. They're part of the created order, but it's in the heavenly realm. We are very captivated by the beauty of God's creation. You go outside, especially at this time of year, things perk up, look a lot nicer once they get all the trash that was under the snow scooped up and whatnot. Then it, it begins to become truly beautiful to the point where human beings actually become captivated by creation over and above the creator. That we could begin to love God's good gifts for us more than the gift Giver. But beyond that, there's this invisible world of beauty and power and authority, and that that too was made by Jesus and for Jesus. And when you see things like um, Asgard in the Thor movies, and you see all these people wearing shiny armor, and they're like in these fancy parties in these areas and stuff like that is a human reflection of the reality that there is more than this world that there are more beings that are more beautiful that are stronger that have power and exist in these places and ride rainbow bridges and stuff like that that there's this other world that Jesus is also above in addition to uh, making all things and owning all things Jesus also holds all things together he holds all things together, which is good news. We're not so good at holding all things together. We can't even hold together our all-church gathering without COVID coming in and like completely disrupting our plans. Um, Jesus holds all things together, including us as his church. 
Continuing in verse 18, it says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, where the things in earth, so that sort of visible created realm, or in heaven, that invisible world of authorities, powers, and rulers, making peace by the blood of, his, of the cross. Now, why does Jesus have to reconcile things to himself? It sounds like everything was perfect, right? He made everything. He made it. It was made for him and by him, and he rules it. He owns it. It perpetuates by his authority. What needs to be reconciled? Well, as we know from Scripture, though it only gives us little windows and hints, and there's a great deal of debate on exactly how this all went down, some of the power structures in that invisible world rebelled. We would refer to this as like the devil or Satan and the the demons or the fallen angels that, that fell with him. But they decided that they didn't want the Father or Jesus, uh, God the Son, to be the sort of ruler over what was good, right, and true anymore. They wanted to make that those decisions for themselves. They wanted to start to set their own rules. And so they rebelled. And they were cast down to sort of this earthly plane. And then Adam and Eve... And humanity, as, as we were in Adam and Eve, that we collectively joined that rebellion against our king and our creator and our owner, that we rebelled. And so the situation that we find ourselves in is of a beautiful world that is also deeply, tragically broken. And it, that contrast is so unbelievable if you think about it. How precious and beautiful our world is. There's so many babies in here, in this room, in those back rooms. Um, if you're lucky, they'll start screaming and you'll hear them. But there's this preciousness of new life. There's beauty in a waterfall. There's, there's uh, majesty in forests and mountains and in the night sky, which most of us, if you live in the city, don't get to see on a regular basis. But if you go to the countryside, it's still there. And it's, it's unbelievable. We have this unbelievable world, and you have so many people who live in it who are trying to do right, right? It's like, how many people do you meet? You look them in the eye, and you're like, you, sir, are truly evil, right? You are, you are really trying to harm all of humanity. Most people, you get the sense, they're like, they would like to try to make the world a better place, right? It's in the pitch deck of every Silicon Valley company. We're here to make the world a better place by tracking you, you know, and selling your data to other people for profit. Um, somehow, it all goes wrong. Why? It's because there is evil also in this world, and it is broken, and we are complicit in that. And so, what does the Lord do? You could think that God would be like, meh, pushes this whole creation into the recycling bin, going to make a new creation and start over. Could have done that. Could have started over. Could have walked away from this one. But instead, the Lord seeks to reconcile himself to his creation. And one way to do this, a human way, the way that you or I would do this, would be to put our crown on, get our sword, climb up on a scary angel horse thing, fly down here and just fix everything, right? By your power, by the strength of your right arm. That's the way that the Lord could have done it. They could have come in wrath, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, Jesus comes motivated not by wrath, but by love. 
that reconciliation process is actually initiated by the person who was offended by God in sending the Son, Jesus, the firstborn over all things, to enter into creation, not to crush his enemies, but to die for them. In doing so, purchases peace between the Father and between mankind. This peace is not cheap. Now, we just celebrated Easter. Did you guys all make it to one of the Easter services? Yes. I just make you raise your hand every once in a while because then it pushes blood into your brain. Who went to Easter? Yeah. All right. There we go. Blood. And, uh, and so we got to celebrate this work of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross. Now, who has seen The Passion of the Christ film by Mel Gibson? It's a little bit older now. Um, and um, we had debated every year. My wife's like, can we show the kids The Passion of the Christ? I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't want them to hate it. It's so scary. You know, it's so violent. Um, and, but importantly so. Uh, I didn't realize this the first time I watched it, that the passion, actually, that word is meant to mean suffering. And you're like, oh, the suffering of Christ. Okay, that makes more sense of the movie I just saw. Now, it does have Catholic sort of roots. There's a lot of, like, church tradition in there, the stations of the cross. So we decided, our kids, which are now, like, you know, grown human beings, uh, for the most part, my wife, Severine, is now the shortest person in our family. So we thought it would be okay you know, to, to watch this. I'm like, we watch Saving Private Ryan. We can probably handle the passion of the Christ. And, uh, and so we decided to watch it. We talked about it ahead of time. We talked about the stations of the cross, tried to explain the, the Catholicism uh, that's in there. And then we watched it. And I hadn't seen it in years since I was a youth pastor. I took the youth group to see it and traumatized them. Um, like, you guys, are, you guys can handle it. Couldn't handle it. Um, and, uh, and so watching it, and I was struck afresh. Now it's like a little bit extra biblical, but like Jesus is carrying the cross and he falls a number of times. And at one point his mother comes around, Mary, and she comes up close to him. And he's like, look, mom. I mean, and he is shredded. Um, just more blood than skin left. And he's holding the cross. He's like, look, mom, I'm making all things new. It just gives me chills. That that is how the Lord chose to enter into our world. To just be absolutely destroyed on our behalf. But that that was his plan for making all things new. And he started with himself because he didn't stay dead. But he was again the firstborn. As Paul says here that he was the firstborn of the new creation. That Jesus is making, as he made things before, he's making everything again. And he started with himself. And then he offers this to us. That we too can be made new. And that then we are gathered into a new community. Which are you here this morning. That normally we gather in smaller communities. But now this morning there are five uh, smaller communities gathered into one larger community. And this eventually will be gathered into the universal community at the wedding feast of the Lamb when we sit and Jesus sits down with us and raises the cup. And there will be such joy in that day. Every layer of the church coming together in unity in this new community brings us joy in the finished work of Jesus. And so like Colossians, rather than pointing back to something that we were and saying, like, you're special. You're special because of what you were, your unique snowflake. No, our identity is now rooted in Jesus. 
Continuing in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh and by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Through Christ we have been made blameless, holy, righteous, that that's our legal status before God. Do you feel that? No more sin for you. You are under grace. And not just grace that was purchased for your past, right? If all of us take a moment and contemplate all of the terrible things that we have done, large and small, there's grace for that. But as John Piper talks about, he wrote a whole book called Future Grace, and he says that most of our hope is actually rooted in the grace that's yet to come, the, the future grace, to recognize that, yes, Jesus was sufficient to remove my sin, but he's sufficient to bring me all the way. Because sometimes we're like, oh, well, Jesus got me here, and now it's team, team, team with Jesus, right? Three-legged race with Jesus, and Jesus is like, keep up, you know, like, we're going to lose. It's going to be your fault. You suck, right? No. Jesus already won the race. He already won the race. He's like, not even the green ribbon. Like, he's like the blue one. He gives you the blue one because he earned it on our behalf. And so we have future grace. And so when Paul issues this call to continue in the faith, there's certain verses in the Bible you read it and you're like, what if I, what if I don't? Is that conditional? What if I don't continue in the faith? What happens? Do I, is that the unforgivable sin, right? Everybody wrestles with that at some point, um, that, that feeling of like, but what if, um, what if he doesn't have grace with me? You know, I just, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And now Paul's saying I have to, con- I have to persist. I have to, if, if I continue in the faith, what is Paul saying here? Paul is issuing a call to continue in the faith, looking not to our works, but to persist in our faith in Jesus' finished work. That is our job. It's, it's harder than it, than it sounds, right? To continuously believe that Jesus' work is good enough. Because our hearts fight against that. They're like, I would feel better if I had more control. If I could at least, I mean, I know I would suck at it, but like if I could contribute something to the work of, of my salvation, if I could participate in some way, if I could have my hands on the controls just a little bit, then I would feel better about this. But no, having faith means continuously looking back to the finished work of Jesus, which means we got to look at him, keep our eyes focused on him. So this is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to get them to continue to look at Jesus because even at this time in the early, early, early church, there was already this mentality of like, you, you, you meet Jesus, he rescues you, you give him a high five, and then you kind of like go forward in your faith to other better things. As if you just, you hear the gospel, you, Jesus forgives you, and then you just, like that's the starting line, and now you're going to go run your race. No, it begins and ends with Jesus. The start line and the finish line are right there. And so Paul is calling them back to saying, fix your eyes again on Jesus. Not on yourself, not on some future works that you're like pursuing, but back to Jesus. Paul had 
uh, a specific calling then from Jesus that as we look at Jesus, we don't just stare, stay there gazing at him just ourselves in our warm little community where we all sort of just hive mind on Jesus, but there's more that Jesus calls us to. We have a calling and a mission. And Paul had a very specific calling to bring the gospel, this good news of finished work of Jesus and being able to look to him to the Gentiles. Um, continuing in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in the flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is Paul's work, and we share in this work. We share in this work that Jesus has also commissioned us not to stay all warm and fuzzy just together in community, but like Jesus and like Paul, to pour ourselves out, uh, pour our lives out as missionaries to the city, to be just completely shredded and carrying our cross like Jesus for the sake of the mission. Uh, this is the kind of work that Transform Quebec does that we were talking about that Mike's going to be working with them, that they seek to work in the other spheres of society, not just the sphere of the church, but in the business world, in education, in science. There's like seven of them. I don't remember them all, but you can look it up later. But there's, there's these different spheres, and the idea is to equip people to be missionaries, chaplains in their workspaces, in these other spheres that we all, like Jesus, go are sent into these environments for the sake of the gospel, to bring the good news. And then what is the aim of this work? It's not just to call people to Jesus, give them like a little stamp and be like, you made it, you're in, high five. No, but it's to bring them to maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. That's Paul's aim, and that should be our aim as well, to present all as mature in Christ. And we accomplish this through, as Paul says, proclaiming Christ, pointing people back to Jesus. It would be easy to say, now that you're a Christian, here's the list. Here's everything you need to do. You need to, you know, be reading your Bible for four hours a day. You need to be praying on your knees, you know, morning and night. You need to be bringing food to widows. Like, you've got to do this. There's a big list. It's a big Bible. Here, just read the Bible. Do everything in this. You'll be great, right? That would be like, if you could do all that stuff, you'll be mature. No. The way that we are rescued is the same way that we are made mature. It's by looking at Christ, by looking at Christ. Uh, Paul continues this, and he says that um, pointing people to Jesus, having them fix their eyes on Jesus, leads to three areas of maturity. Uh, first of all, that they would have hearts of courage, that you would have courage. This is kind of hard. Like you watch The Passion of the Christ, and you're like, Christian, eh? Little Christ. Hmm. You know, the kids are like, that's our destiny? Do they get shredded like that? Like, that's, that's kind of what the Bible says. Um, that on some level that we would, we would suffer as Jesus suffered. So we need hearts of courage. Um, jumping to chapter 2 in Colossians, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle 
This is Paul writing this. How great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So we need courage. We also need good order. And off of Dwight's notes here, it says that's a military term. I guess he looked this up. So positions occupied by a group of soldiers, that, that you are ordered in a military kind of way. The military has perhaps the highest form of order out of any types of things in society, right? Churches, low level of order. Businesses, you have a higher level of order. The military, everything is very ordered, very, very ordered. And he's actually saying that this is the kind of level of order, a higher level of order than churches typically would have, um, that we should have in our mission. And then thirdly, a firmness of faith. And again, he uses a military term here. This firmness means like a a fortified defensive wall, unbreakable. So you have this sense, you need courage. We need to be organized or ordered, and there needs to be defenses. Why is Paul using all this sort of military scary language? Well, it's because we're at war. I've said it before. If you are at war and you don't know you're at war, you are going to get slaughtered. We're at war. So this is important in our thinking. As we gaze upon Jesus and as he reconciles all things to himself, we recognize that this work is begun but not yet finished. That the powerful, more powerful than us, beings that fell from heaven and are now wreaking havoc on this planet, especially, it feels like a lot right now with the wars and pandemics and sickness and famine and floods and inflation and food prices, like things are a mess on purpose because we are being attacked we are at war. So the takeaway on this is not to just hunker down, but to be anticipating that we are at war and being um, under attack. That becoming a Christian isn't entering into retirement. We're not just playing Christian shuffleboard, but we're at war. And the enemy is real. Verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. You don't see it because we're not looking for it, but there is a battle raging here between Jesus and these rulers and authorities. You see this over and over again, the rulers and authorities, that they are seeking to take our minds captive with deceptive philosophies, that these deceptive philosophies are baked into your favorite television programs. They're baked into the news reports you see. 
Everything that you have coming at you from the world has seeds of deceptive teaching baked into it. And it's overt. It's overt at this point. The rebellion in the garden where Adam and Eve joined with the devil, Satan, in saying, I want to choose what's right and wrong. I want to do what my heart says is right. I want to be the arbiter. That's, that's like the ethos of our day, right? We have Instagram hashtags celebrating like, you know, do your thing. Trust your heart. Listen to your, be true to yourself, right? This is literally the playbook of the rebellion. This is the rallying cry of the enemy of God. And this is like the celebrated thing in our society. So it's everywhere. So we have to be on guard against this philosophy that's coming in and trying to capture us. But Jesus disarmed them. We live in an age now, post-cross, where Jesus has taken the power of these authorities and rulers away from them. And what was that power? It was to use the law to accuse us. Who here is a law breaker? Yes. Everyone has to raise their hand and, you know, the blood to the brain. There you go. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us. And for a long time, the enemy could come before God, as we see Satan do before, Job, before the Lord, to accuse him, to accuse Job, to ask permission to harm him and to test him. It's a fascinating picture. You, you see Satan is very much like a lawyer. You can picture him in a suit with his briefcase. He's like, I have some accusations to make against your people today. And that's what he does. That's what Satan means. It means accuser. But now when Satan accuses us, Jesus stands up and says, nope, paid for. Nope, doesn't count. Dealt with. And the guy's like, I don't have anything. Trumped. Every charge. Free. By grace. Finished work of Jesus. The enemy doesn't have power over us in the same way. Very frustrating for them. Now, they're liars. So, they'll still accuse your heart. You have to be on guard. You need courage. The enemies of the rulers of the air, they still are at work, even in their less powerful state. So the war is real. The enemy is real. They'll seek to divide and lie and deceive us, to put apathy into our hearts, to convince us the war isn't real. Instead, we need to look to Jesus and remember that victory is ours in Christ and that this work, this mission, is, will be hard, that there is a challenge in this. Paul writes a um, different book, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We suffer now with joy, the way that Jesus suffered with joy, because he looked to the joy that was before him. We too look to that joy, that we will go into his rest, that we will be remade, that these bodies can be destroyed for the sake of the mission, because we have new, better bodies awaiting us. That the fleeting pleasures of this world are trumped by the pleasures of God that are waiting for us at his right hand forever. If we rightly orient our minds so that we are looking above to the invisible future reality of life with Christ, sin loses its allure. Satan loses his power. 
the battle becomes easier. We have that courage, but we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And this is something that we have to do every day. I'm convinced most people stop being Christian as they're sleeping. And when you wake up, you're not really a Christian anymore. Some Christian writer was saying, he's like, as he drinks his morning coffee, he goes from being an atheist to a deist to like a Mormon and to finally a Christian. You know, like he just, he kind of has to warm back into the saddle. And um, you should probably not just be using coffee to bootstrap yourself there, but spiritual disciplines of fixing your eyes on Christ, which at this stage, as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, means communing with the Spirit through the reading of God's Word. And that's why we invite you to read God's Word every morning. You're like, I like reading it at night. Then you're only a Christian for like 10 minutes, and then you fall asleep, right? Come on. Like, we engage in the spiritual discipline of opening God's word in the morning, asking the Spirit to remake us in the image of Jesus, to re-give us gifts of power, to remind us of our identity, to remind us that the enemy has no power, to remind us to, to have our hearts broken for our neighbors, for those who are lost, to completely reorient. If you scroll Facebook in the morning, first thing, instead of reading your Bible, you will be oriented in a different way throughout your whole day. You need to scroll the Scriptures first thing in the morning. So out of this comes our work. Out of this comes our work. Our first work is to be Christ-obsessed and and to be a community of people who are Christ-obsessed and who forge followers of, of Jesus in the gospel. But the second work then is to take that out into the mission field. So how are we doing these things as a church, as Church 21? Well, as you heard this morning, I forget who said it, maybe it was Trenton or Jeff, but our, our sort of like purpose, our, our statement, what you'll see on our website is that we are seeking to forge followers of Jesus in Montreal, to forge followers of Jesus. And the forging process is intentionally aggressive. We wrestled with it. They're like, will it hurt people's precious feelings? (laughs) If people hear it and they're like, forging sounds painful. It's that process of like a steel mill where they're pouring the hot metal and it gets, you know, into shapes and stuff for things. And and so this forging process is 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 violent. It's 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 intense. And eventually we're like, no, this is okay. There is a bit of there is a bit of a violence to being forged into the image of Jesus. There is a death to self that occurs. It feels, sometimes you're you're, you're in it and Jesus is working on you more aggressively than other times. Uh, We'll refer to this as pruning, the season of pruning. Who's ever pruned a tree before or some kind of bush? You're cutting it. You're removing things. It's pain, you know, if trees can feel, I guess we'll find out later. It's painful, right? It's painful for the Lord when he prunes us, when he's reshaping us. It feels like you're being whittled. You're being carved into the image of Christ. And so forging followers of Jesus. So that's, that's what we seek to do as a church. That everything we do from gathering on Sundays to gathering as city groups on mission in the cities, to gathering as change groups, or even just doing the Monday morning challenge call, men, for 15 minutes, if you don't have enough time for anything else, 15-minute call. Like, all of these layers of our church are designed to be iron sharpens iron, forging one another more and more into the image of Christ. And then we want to take that out into the world. 
There are like 4 million people in Montreal, and we want them all to be exposed to the good news of the gospel. We want all of them to be exposed in every language. And so as we do this, um, we will continue to plant churches. Now, as you've noticed, like our church does two or three different things. One thing we do is we plant congregations. So Church 21, West Island, Downtown, South Shore, NDG, these are congregations within our church. Reach Montreal, some of their history, they're here with us this morning, some of their history is in uh, being a, a church sort of initially like a church plant of Church 21 in the West Island, and eventually um, that becoming Reach Montreal and becoming a church revitalization work with an existing church, that we want to see existing churches thrive, whether that means being revitalized or straight up replanted. This is something that happens. Every um, church has a life arc, which is natural, and sometimes they need to be relaunched, replanted, and so we're involved in that. Um, the same thing if you guys have ever gone to an event that we've held, like a regional event at the Eglise Verdun Church building, that's a church that we've been involved in re, uh, revitalizing there as well through our French ministries. Um, we have also, though, churches that we actually send out like church planters, where someone's like, yeah, I'm going to go kind of far away. And, or they have their own particular DNA that they're going to work out. And so we'll actually plant a separate church. It's not Church 21, whatever. It's like something else. Uh, we also have received this sort of weird new opportunity as a church where um, churches in Montreal and around Montreal have pastors that are retiring. And, you know, they're done. They've served. They're retiring. And these churches don't have, like, no one wants to move here to be a pastor. Um, and so they don't have the leadership that they need. And so they're coming to us to be like, hey, you guys have like an excess of pastors. You guys could like, you know, come and preach once in a while for us. And we're like, uh, you know, do we do this? Like there's a whole other thing. But we, our heart is for the whole city and all the churches. So right now, Trenton and Dwight are developing, as is, this is the way things happen in our church, like develop a new thing. So developing this new thing that's saying, we will do more than come and just preach and do pulpit fill for you. We will sign a thing with you where we'll actually come and do interim work with you for six months. And we will come and our, not just one guy, but a, a team will come, we'll preach, we'll fill pulpit, we'll do a certain number of days a week of pastoral care for your people. And then you're invited into like our all church gathering, you're invited into our regional women's and men's events, youth ministry, all that stuff. Like come and be with us. We're not, we don't want to just like be like contract labor, come in and like do a job, tick a box. We want to love you well and hopefully help bring uh, someone in permanently to be able to meet that need. So that's something that we are involved in just trying to figure out now, and you could be praying for us and for these churches because these folks um, are needing care. Um, and then the other stuff is that we're doing, we have the seminary and we have courses for everyone. Who did one of the courses for everyone thing this last year? Some of you, it filled up and then it was done and then it was over and you couldn't join. It's like Sunday school, but on steroids. Um, so let me warn you, there will be another one. It will op registration will open. 
it will get full and it will close. And we're happy that lots of other church folks from other churches all of Montreal participated. But selfishly, I want all of you guys to go. So um, when that announcement begins ad nauseum for a period of time, don't get used to it. Don't ignore it until after you've gone and registered because it's a very, very valuable time. So a bunch of different things that we're doing trying to be ordered, trying to be organized, trying to be courageous, but the whole time keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus because Jesus is alive. Now, this is where Dwight's like Brazilian steakhouse. And I'm like, Brazilian steakhouse. What he means is, in his experience, that's where you go and they give you too much food. But I have never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, so I picture going to a sushi place where they have the little, little train have you seen this before? They're like, I don't know if they have them here. In Oregon, they have these where like the little train is going by, the little sushi plates around forever and ever and ever. It's an endless supply. And with sushi, you just, you know, you just, you just take the plate. They'll, they'll bill you later, put it on your tab. And you're just like, that looks good. And that looks good. And you're eating. And you eat past the point. It takes 20 minutes for your stomach to tell your brain, stop already. And in those 20 minutes, the amount of rice and raw fish you can pack in your system is impressive. And then the rice begins to expand or something. It's not good. And so there's that sense of being like, that's my Brazilian steakhouse story. It's too much. Jesus wants to overwhelm us with too much. If you allow yourself to look upon him directly, eventually, with persistence, you will be overwhelmed by his glory. And if the manifest presence, I mean, you have the Holy Spirit as a Christian. The Spirit dwells in you. You are the temple, the dwelling place of God. But there is a difference between the Holy Spirit's presence and his active manifest presence, right? Pilot light, Holy Spirit, versus like, oh, I'm going to turn the heater up to 25 right now. And the furnace kicks on full bore. And you experience the Holy Spirit's presence. It'll mess you up. I genuinely, I'm going to, confession time, I genuinely, sinfully resist having some of those experiences sometimes because I have had experiences of them where I have been uncomfortable by the Holy Spirit's presence. That it is, you, you start saying like, I am a man of unclean lips. I am too frail. I'm like those guys in the Old Testament, you know, they're like, I would like to see you. And God's like, mm, just my back. <laughs> you know, like your eyes will blow up. You know, like the, the Lord's presence is so overwhelming and yet so life-giving. I understand why our bodies need to be remade for us to endure it 24-7. And I have had these strange experiences of sensing almost like uh, gemstones or rubies. This is getting weird, I know. I don't talk about this very much. But like in my mouth, on my skin, weird. I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense. If like, if your body is made of like jasper, or something, you might be tough enough to gaze upon the glory of Jesus forever and burn with his spirit. And this is something that people miss, like everybody burns after death. Whether in the fires of hell or the glory of God, we're all going to burn. And it's going to be glorious or it's going to be tragic. And we can access that now, carefully, uh, but with persistence. Gaze upon the Lord and you will be begin to taste that power and be remade. And Jesus is going to come back. We have a limited duration time for this ministry, for this mission. So the days are short. The time is precious. Don't waste it on, you know, doom scrolling on your phone, okay? There are better things to do. 
The lost are crying out. They're all around us. They're all around us. Jesus is coming back. His grace is with us and he is with us. Jesus, use us. Bring revival. Spirit, we ask that you would fill us in that manifest way. Don't overwhelm us with your presence until you've remade us for that purpose. But Lord, we ask that you would just give us enough that we would be so empowered uh, for your mission, that we would have no uh, fear, that we would trust in your future grace, in the finished work of Jesus, that we could just be absolutely destroyed in our lives and our bodies, that our plans and our dreams would be destroyed, would be shredded. Uh, that, that like you, we can say, look, I am participating in this. I am, I am helping make all things new. Lord, we ask that you would start with us and you would include this city. We ask that you do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.